When you hear the word judgment, what do you think of? Do you think of someone on the corner on some sort of milk crate proclaiming the wrath of God? Do you think of someone from the pulpit talking about sinners and hell? Do you think of little sheep in a pasture and it warms your heart? How do you, how do you feel? Does it make the hair on the back of your neck stand up? Or do you put a wall up and lean back? How are you feeling right now, knowing that this is the conversation that we are about to enter into? This is going to sound strange, but I'm in a season where as I hear the word judgment, I'm trying to lean in. Before you call me weird, let me, let me give you the two reasons I have for that. First one's this. I think we have in the West appropriately acknowledged Jesus and the Father and the Spirit as this triune God of love. This is how we see him revealed throughout Scripture, the God of love and of relationship, of mercy and of compassion. But it makes it very challenging for us then to come across the many Psalms, for example, that talk about judgment on God's enemies, coming across the, the prophets that are proclaiming judgment on nations, the recognition of a God who has this sense of things that are deeply wrong and they need to be addressed. So there's something that I'm trying to lean into of saying, how do I actually expand my understanding of scripture and not limit myself to certain pieces? But the second thing is this, and this is the part that's become really, I'll, I'll call it mind-blowing. It started reading, uh, when I was reading Revelation, I came across Revelation chapter 8. It talks about these golden bowls that are filled with the prayers of the saints. It's a very symbolic image, but the prayers of the saints have been collected in these golden bowls over the generations, and they haven't yet been answered, so the, pr the prayers have just been collected. And it reaches a point, finally, in Revelation 8, where the prayers of the saints are going to be answered. And so the bowls that have been collecting these prayers are poured out. And the way that they are prayed out, the way that they are poured out, is in acts of judgment. And it seems strange to me, but it connected something. There was something about the way that God's people were praying, the way that they were longing for him to move, that was answered in judgment. Today we come to the plagues as we continue our series in Exodus, what is probably the Bible's foundational text on judgment. There's 10 plagues working through things like the turning of water into blood, frogs coming out of the water, gnats, flies, hail, locusts, all these things. These become central images throughout the entire rest of the story of Scripture about the judgment of God. In fact, all the way to the end in Revelation, when the judgment of God comes, it's using these exact types of images. So we come today to understand why on earth is judgment something that's not only talked about consistently in Scripture, but something that God's people actually long for? And so to that end, we turn to Exodus chapter 7. Now, my wife's making fun of me because last time that I preached, I spent 20 minutes on all of five words. And today we have five chapters to cover. So you already know, you can, you can look at the bar and you can see how well I did in terms of keeping this short. I don't yet know. So we're gonna see how well I do here. Exodus chapter seven, 
Verses one to four, and four, maybe five, are kind of going to become our anchor point. We're going to refer back to this again and again because it sets the stage for what's going to happen throughout the rest of the five chapters. And then we'll just refer to pieces. I'm not going to read every single word. We're not going to be here for two hours, I hope. Exodus chapter seven, starting at verse one. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. This sets the stage for what is to come. It's about God's judgment on Egypt. Let me just define for you what we are talking about when we talk about judgment today. Judgment, we understand to be, at least here, the defeat and or destruction of that which opposes God. The defeat and or destruction of that which opposes God. This is not the only way that the Bible talks about judgment. You can talk about judging between what is good and what is bad. You can talk about judging uh, in the book of Judges. There are a whole bunch of judges that come up as leaders of God's people. But in this context, when we talk about God's judgment, it is the defeat and or destruction of that which opposes God. And here we see at the beginning of the, of the chapter of 7, is that this is a specific clash against Pharaoh. Pharaoh is intended to be an archetype of evil. He is a genocidal, murderous tyrant, a slaver, one who has heard the cries of those he oppresses, and it would have been considered merciful if he just ignored them, but rather than that, he increases their burden. He's intended to be a universally understood evil figure. The closest paradigm we might have today would be someone like Hitler. But he's not just intended to be someone who's some distant thing. The recognition is that Pharaoh is an evil figure that gets expressed in a whole bunch of different ways today in the wickedness and the evil of genocide that continues today in the suffering caused around the world all throughout the book of exodus so far the question has been what will god do when creation is faced with such injustice what will god do when creation has suffering and pain, and wickedness, and evil. We reach in chapter 7 the answer to that question. The plagues are God's stand against injustice. This is the climactic moment so far of saying here is about to be the answer to all the pain and suffering, the wickedness that Israel has experienced. Let's read just one plague example. Chapter 7, starting at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. 
Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with one staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. This is going to happen 10 times in a row, 10 different plagues, 10 acts of judgment that are the response to Egypt's ongoing evil, suffering, slavery of Israel. One of my initial tendencies had been to figure out how to see how these were, um, almost to soften them in my own head, that they weren't actually as significant as, as maybe it seemed at first. I think I want to do the opposite here. I think I want to show that these acts of judgment are far more severe than we might see on the surface. Skip down to verse 25. Chapter 7, verse 25. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Seven full days. If you have been a close reader of the Bible, seven full days might remind you of another portion of it. it might remind you of the story of creation, when God himself made the earth over seven days. He made it over six days, and then on the seventh day, rested. In those seven days, here are the things that God creates. He talks about, it talks about light. It talks about land and sea. It talks about the animals that are in the water and on the land. It talks about humans. All of these things end up being the exact targets of God's judgment in the plagues. That there's actually a parallel here. Let me show you that this is actually an act of decreation. So in this first plague, Whereas before, God made the waters in the, in the book of Genesis, and they were intended to be sources of life. Here in Exodus 7, the waters are filled with blood, and they become sources of death. In the second plague, frogs, how does this compare? Well, in the story of Genesis, what happens is God is separating the land and the earth as two distinct areas. And here we see in this story the frogs coming out of the water in the second plague and on earth. They're actually, he's actually undoing what happened in the story of Genesis. In the fourth plague, we see the flies that come out of the dust of the earth. Previously, it was humans that were made out of the dust of the earth, bringers of life. Now these flies, these bringers of sickness and death are brought out of the dust of the earth. In the seventh and eighth plagues, we see hail and we see locusts that are said to destroy the vegetation of the earth till nothing green is left in comparison to, in the story of Genesis, the vegetation of the garden. It's called the Garden of Eden for a reason. It was filled with life and greenery and vegetation and fruit, but all of this is destroyed. In the ninth plague, we see darkness contrasting the way that God begins the creation story, the creation account, by saying, let there be light. And in place of this is darkness. And finally, in the 10th plague, we see actual death, the death of the firstborn. Compare that to the story of Genesis, which brings the first human life on earth. It's a story of decreation. 
It's a story of undoing. And the first line, I have this little notebook where I, where I keep sermon thoughts before I go to bed so that I can have them somewhere in the fall asleep. The first line that I had to talk about this was something along the lines of this, injustice undoes God's goodness. Just kind of like felt good. Sarah actually like was like, hey, that's a good line. But I was like, I was pretty proud of it. But I actually think it's not significant enough. If we were to simply say injustice does God, undoes God's goodness, it acts as if God is just a passive bystander and injustice is undoing things while he's over here. This is far different. This is God actively involved in decreating and unmaking things. This is God seeing an unjust world and reversing creation. God has no vision for creation that tolerates injustice. No vision at all. He has no interest in allowing a world that is unjust, that allows suffering and pain on people to exist. He will unmake it. He is unmaking it. He is not going to pay lip service to suffering while contributing to it on the side. He is not a passive bystander to the injustice of the world. He is actively involved. He stands definitively on the side of injustice. Whatever it looks like, whether it is the story of the refugee, whether it is the story of the one in human trafficking, whether it is the story of genocide, the things that continue to go on. Our women's pastor, Rusha, led us through an exercise as a staff team this week where we were given stories of different women, true, true stories of women in BC who attempted to access resources, who found themselves in positions of suffering. Uh, the group that I was a part of followed the story of a woman named Alicia. Pregnant, about to have a baby in an abusive relationship. During the, during the actual birth of the child, she's attempting, or as she's at the hospital, I think for a checkup, she attempts to tell one of the nurses about the abusive relationship, but Nurse brushes her off, attempts to talk to a doctor, brushes off, sends to a therapist. Eventually, Alicia goes to a therapist, tries to explain the situation. All she's prescribed with is depression medication, antidepressants. She continues to try and seek out resources, but people, probably because they're overstaffed and they have, uh, they have a lack of resources, she is attempting to check into different centers for support for women, and she finds obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. And all we're doing is we're attempting to, in this little room, relive the story of Alicia. We walk over to the housing section as she attempts to escape and imagine what it might be like to live somewhere else or to uh, find employment somewhere else. Eventually, she gets stuck. Uh, she, she is struggling with alcohol addiction and she tries to check into rehab, but she also has her child and she can't take her child with her. And she, she attempts to access all these different resources. But we feel in the 15 minutes of this exercise, the ongoing hopelessness that Alicia faces, the suffering, the injustice, until at the end, the final point we are given is that she just feels trapped and she doesn't know what to do. The judgment of God is designed to say that Alicia's story has no part existing that way in creation. That Alicia was designed to live in a thriving, flourishing, good creation. And God intends to unmake, to decreate those things which prevent that from happening. 
This is not about destroying all of creation altogether. In fact, consistently throughout the story, Israel is set aside. They do not experience the hail that is dis destroying the crops of Egypt. They do not experience the darkness that covers the land. They are separated. They are saved out of it. But it's about saying God has no interest in, in allowing injustice in this world. We see this, actually, again, in our passage in Exodus chapter 7. Read verses 4 and 5 with me. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Two things are being said as if they are the exact same moment. On the one hand, Israel will be brought out of this injustice. They will be rescued. They will be saved. And on the other side, which is just as true, Egypt will be judged. Here's what's being presented. There is no salvation without judgment. There is no rescue. There is no hope. There is no redemption without judgment. It is totally true that the book of Exodus is the foundational story of God's rescue. It's foundationally true that in a few chapters, in chapter 14 and 15, is going to be the first time in the entire Bible we're going to see the word salvation. It is entirely true that as you enter the New Testament, 1,400 years down the road, and you see the story of Jesus, and you hear about the salvation that he offers, the authors of the New Testament are imagining some sort of version of the Exodus on an even greater degree. Salvation is the central story, but consistently throughout it, there has to be something that's judged. And it just makes inherent sense. If you want to be rescued from the struggles of cancer, cancer needs to be destroyed. If you want to be rescued from the struggles of an abusive relationship, that needs to be, you need to be freed from that. The abusive relationship needs to be cast aside. It needs to be defeated. It needs to be overcome. If you need to be rescued from captivity, the chains need to be broken. There is no salvation without judgment. Here's something that's striking to note who is involved. Again, Exodus 7, verses 4 and 5. I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. The Egyptians are included in this judgment. That might feel a little bit interesting, but you see that through the plagues. Their economic life is totally destroyed. The agriculture, the cattle, all of it is tossed up, destroyed. They have nothing left. It would have flipped their world on, their, uh, flipped their world on its head. What did they do? It's fascinating to me. You could easily imagine an Egyptian citizen saying to one another, well, we, we are not specifically contributing to the slavery of Israel. We, it, is not, it is not our responsibility to take care of this. The judgment that happens in the plague seems to suggest that they are complicit in the oppression of Israel. That by aligning themselves with the empire of Egypt, they are complicit in the injustice of Israel. 
I think these are heavy words to a Western world where it is easy to distance ourselves from the suffering others from others. But knowing that many of the things, for example, that we purchase uh, can be can be connected to such things as slave labor from knowing that the ways in which our political governments can make decisions that affect millions around the world. And there's no easy issue to this. I'm not here to make some sort of simple solution or say that we need to create some sort of huddle and escape from all government. That's not, that's not the intention here. But it is saying there is something powerful about being aligned and complicit with injustice. Now here's a hypothetical question for you. What if Israel never knew that, they, that their slavery needed to be judged? What if they never recognized it? And it seems like a silly question, but just please let it play out with me. Imagine Israel in slavery, not acknowledging that there actually needs to be judgment in order for them to be rescued. They kind of just sit there. They recognize, man, there's a lot of work. I don't get to see my family lots. I'm always tired. I never have enough sleep. I'm collapsing. I see my, I see my friends and family dying around me because they're overworked, but I just need to make sure that I get up next morning and if I just push harder, I'll be okay. And maybe, maybe one day I might be able to rise the ranks and become some sort of official amongst the slaves and get some sort of help. It'd be a tragic, tragic story. And of course it's ridiculous. It's also what was attempted in the North Atlantic slave trade. African slaves were given these Bibles that were called slave Bibles. And in them were removed anything that might retell some part of this story. It told the story earlier of Joseph entering slavery in Egypt, entering captivity, but it never told the story of the liberation. These slave traders and these slave owners attempted to give some sort of good morality, some sort of recognition of words like submission without knowing, without allowing these Africans to, these beautiful people to, to recognize that they were actually under oppression and that God's intentions for them were to be rescued. There is no salvation without judgment. It was an evil, wicked act. And God would unmake creation to end that. He will not allow that to stand. Now, why do I bring up that hypothetical situation? 1,400 years after this story in Exodus, Israel's gonna find themselves under Roman occupation. Not necessarily as slaves, but limited in their ability to worship, limited in their ability to govern themselves, heavily taxed longing again for something new, longing for the judgment of God. They wanted a new Moses to lead them out of this new Egypt into a new Exodus, and Jesus arrives on the scene. And he is this new Moses, and he's ready to take them on this new Exodus story. That's what the New Testament is about. But he doesn't confront the Roman occupiers in the way that Israel wants, because he says, Yes, there is injustice, but the source of it is something far deeper. The source of it is this idea of sin. If you remember our definition of judgment, the defeat and or destruction of that which opposes God, Jesus comes and says the key thing that opposes God is sin. The thing that, uh, the thing that overpowers and oversees and supervises great systems of injustice and also the thing 
that addresses us personally. It's fascinating to me that in the plagues, this is also the source. This is also the source of judgment. You actually don't see throughout these five chapters much acknowledgement of the oppression of Israel. You do see, however, a confrontation with Pharaoh who will challenge the worship of God. Read with me again in chapter 7. The Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet, and you shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. This is going to sound strange, but I think we need to understand what's happening here as a contest of the gods. If you're not convinced by that, let me show you what I mean. In the first verse, says that Moses has been made like God to Pharaoh. That this is a confrontation of Moses who's acting, the active hands and feet of God to Pharaoh. There's some sort of confrontation happening. If you're still not convinced, recognize that in that day, Pharaoh was worshipped himself as a god. If you're still not convinced, jump to chapter 7, verse 20. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And the water in the Nile turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile died. And the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went to his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for the water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Two things, an engagement with the magicians, the practicers of secret dark arts, as it's described uh, in other parts of this passage. Um, confrontation against them, seeking the powers of alternative sources of spiritual evil. The Nile worshipped in Egypt as a god. In fact, some scholars will go through the plagues and try and identify them with different gods in the mythology of Egypt. In the next one, the frogs may be associated with the god Aheki. And you can go through a whole bunch. We're not really sure. If you're still not convinced that this is a contest of the gods, just go to Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. It says this, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The way that the author of scripture understands this is that the plagues are actual judgment, not just on Egypt, the people, but ultimately on the gods, the spiritual forces that are at work themselves. Maybe you're confused here. Why then Pharaoh? Why not specifically outline the gods of Israel? Why does it say that Moses has been made like God to Pharaoh? Well, it's the same reason that we actually don't know, we're not told which Pharaoh it, this specifically is. The authors of scripture have no issue identifying uh, historical figures with literal historical figures. They can tell the kings that they defeated or the kings that they were defeated by. They often like to add historical notes. They don't do this here because they're wanting to say Pharaoh is the archetype of evil. He is what happens when someone fully relinquishes themselves to spiritual evil. So this is a story, yes, of God overthrowing injustice, but it's also saying that the plagues are God's way of standing against idolatry. 
Think of it this way. The first part is the recognition that there is horizontal evil. Across peoples, there is injustice and suffering. This second piece, which actually seems to be the center in the story, is about a vertical idolatry. It's about false worship. It's about plagues that are designed to confront the gods of Egypt. The Nile, worshipped as a god, confronted right off the beginning. Made me wonder, just as a hypothetical, what would a modern plague look like? If this is designed to confront the idols of the day, the false worship of the day, what would it look like? Maybe it would confront our desire for instant gratification or instant access by causing us not to be able to text one another, but to have to actually write out snail mail to people. Maybe we'd have to go into a bank to actually access our funds. Maybe, just hear me out here, maybe in our desire like individualism, independence, do things on our own, maybe the plague would remove the self-checkout lines at the grocery store and you'd actually have to wait in line with someone to talk to someone. Maybe a modern plague would confront our worship of youthfulness by causing all of us to become 80 years old, old and wrinkly, not having the sort of liveliness that we seem to idolize. Maybe it would cause us to confront the worship of beauty, have boils pour out on our faces. The judgment on uh, Egypt was to confront their false worship. As we go down this line of imagining that the plagues are God's confrontation against idolatry, I can't help but ask this question and, and imagine that you might be asking this question yourself. Whoa. Please acknowledge I'm going to say more after I say this. Should we understand COVID-19 to be the judgment of God? I open by asking you, how do you feel when the word judgment comes up? How are you feeling right now? Have you turned off the TV or computer or iPhone or whatever you're watching on? Here's how I think we should understand it according to scripture. No. And potentially. Here's what I mean. In John 9, Jesus' disciples ask him, as they see a blind man, they ask him, Jesus, who, was, who sinned that this man was born blind, himself or his parents? And Jesus' response is that neither he nor his parents were born blind. He goes on, they have this engagement with the man, but it's essentially a teaching that specifically and explicitly denies the fact that you can just point to a natural disaster or a natural event and say that's the judgment of God. Explicitly denied. And yet, if we define judgment as the defeat and or destruction of that which opposes God, is it possible that a pandemic could have defeated things that were opposed to God? A hundred percent. Did I see that in my own life? Absolutely. Did the pandemic confront my prayerlessness by revealing to me that I, the first instinct I had as a youth pastor was to see all the different systems we could try and build and the ideas we could have and the teams we could create and all these types of things. And my first response was not to fall on my knees and pray. Yeah, it did do that. It showed that to me. 
Did it reveal to me the way in which I was not living within the limitations that humans are created for? Because I attempted to make up for all the change by just working harder. Yeah, it revealed that to me. There's, there's a sense in which the, the pandemic actually allowed those things to be purged, to be destroyed, and to be defeated from my life. Have they come back? Yeah. <laughs> I hope I've learned my lesson and I, can, and, I can, and I can move forward. But there's this ongoing oscillation of my heart almost that continues to struggle with these things. And I continue to need to be delivered from them. In fact, we have in Pharaoh not only the archetype of evil, but a human archetype of evil who struggles with this himself. We see his consistent struggle in chapter 9, verse 27 to 35. This is after hail has struck down and destroyed the crops. Then Harrow sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Sounds good. Moses said to him, as soon as I've gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. We'll jump down to verse 33. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail ceased and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the, train and the, hail, that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. It's that oscillation of the heart. It's what later authors will describe as double-mindedness. It's sometimes described as hypocrisy, to say one thing and to live another way. Here, it's described as being hard-hearted. A failure to acknowledge that what you've done is wrong. I think this is ingrained into the human psyche. <laughs> I do this when, I'm, when, when my wife and I are having discussions uh, and I realize, as is typically the case, that she ends up being right. <laughs> Rather than acknowledging, hey, Sarah, you're right, I just, I just end the conversation, say, no, nope, you're wrong, and then walk off. I just like, there's something about me that just refuses to acknowledge and, and say, yeah, you're right. This is described as being hard-hearted. It's also the reason for Pharaoh's ongoing judgment. There's a question that comes up uh, because what you get to see throughout this story is that there's times where it's described that God hardened his heart and there's times where it's described that Pharaoh himself hardened his heart. And it, it is actually a contentious issue. If Pharaoh hardened his heart, fine. Let the judgment come. If God hardened his heart, is this not unfair? It's a question of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Maybe those are big categories, but it's often in Christian circles, a conversation that comes up. How do we understand this? Well, first of all, the authors here seem to have no issue with describing it both ways. And that's consistent throughout scripture. They allow both those things to stand together. Yeah, humans are responsible for this. Yeah, God is in control. Both of them, they don't see, they don't see any issue with allowing those things to stand side by side. Second thing is this, I just want to rip through in these five chapters every single time that it's described and see the trajectory of how, the, how his heart gets hardened. So it'll get flashed up on the screen here. First, 
I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So that is God describing in the future, at some point, he's going to do it. Next, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. We don't know where it came from, it was just hardened. Next, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Don't know where it came from. Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. Don't know where it came from. Then, he, that is Pharaoh, hardened his heart. He initiated it. Next, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Don't know where it came from. Then, Pharaoh's hardened his heart. Again, Pharaoh, the initiator. And then we get to, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Now it's coming from God. Goes back to Pharaoh though. He, Pharaoh, sinned yet again and hardened his heart. And then, so the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. And we finish with this major consistent thing throughout chapters 10 and 11. I, that is God, have hardened his heart. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Seems like there's a clear trajectory to me. God promises it, but it actually is beginning. The initial act is because Pharaoh himself hardens his heart. The trajectory is similar to actually what we see in Psalm chapter 18, verses 25 to 26. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. In other words, God's response, God's, God's involvement in our lives is actually recognizing the way in which we have first responded to him. And we see this in the story of Pharaoh. It's a lot of talk about judgment. You're probably wondering why you tuned in today. <laughs> Let me leave you with a few things. First one's just a question. From your perspective, what needs to be judged? From your perspective, what needs to be judged? We want to avoid being like the people, uh, the slave owners who prevented and denied the acknowledgement of things that needed to be judged, the slavery, the actual needing to set the captives free. What needs to be judged? Think about this on two levels. What's happening horizontally? Where do you see injustice around the world? And also think about it vertically. Think about the idols of your own heart, the worship, that I should say, the ways in which you reject and deny the reality of Jesus and of God himself. What needs to be judged? Second thing, just want to show you this. God does these great acts through some awesome people. Exodus 7, verse 7. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aiden and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. I love that. God conquers the powers of darkness through octogenarians. Did I just learn what octogenarian means? Yes, and I just wanted to find a way to use it. Doesn't change my point. Through people that we would not define to be people in their primes of their life, these are the ones that God used to perform his great acts of judgment and of salvation. Last thing I want to note is this. We talked about how Pharaoh's trajectory is toward an ongoing hardening. There has been a different trajectory by a different people. In the chapter before what we read, we get to see that, uh, sorry, two chapters before in chapter five, we get to see the people of Israel exhausted, doubtful, cynical, with a broken spirit, uncertain of God's deliverance. 
Listen to where they end at the conclusion of the plagues in chapter 12, verse 12. The people of Israel bowed their heads and worshiped. I don't know how it would have worked for them, but I can just imagine that as these plagues continue to rise up and as they see ways in which they're separated and protected from it, an ongoing increase of trust in God until finally at the moment of their deliverance, they bow their heads in worship. Do you see this? Liberation arrives when the people bow in worship. It's not something that they, you could not read the story and imagine that they did it on their own. It's the act of God and yet the timing of it coincides when the people bow in worship. So think through those three things. One, what needs to be judged? Where does the justice of God need to come? Two, how am I empowered to actually be God's agent in overcoming, in overcoming injustice and idolatry? And three, how can I step into worship and participate in the deliverance of God's people?